In years to come, if people look back on 2021 and 2022, they will see an unusual jump in the publication of books about the church and the importance of the church. And the reason for that is not difficult to understand. Covid lockdowns led to some deciding that they could replace real church with online church or perhaps just drift away altogether. And so in response to that, one book which came out in 2021 was entitled Love Your Church. Um, I have it here, Love Your Church. Uh, The subtitle is Eight Great Things About Being a Church Member. So that's last year. Uh, A similar book came out earlier this year uh, with the title, Why Should We Love the Local Church? Uh, So similar title, similar theme. Uh, And over the past year or so, many of our fellow RP churches have found it helpful to think through some of the topics raised uh, more deeply, either as part of a sermon series or by reading the book Love Your Church together uh, and discussing it. Uh, Our brother Peter was was preaching here last week and in North Edinburgh they read the book Love Your Church and they met together each week to discuss it. Other congregations have taken the titles of the eight chapters in the book and used them as the basis for a sermon series. For example, in Gerald and Ruth's previous congregation in Milford and Donegal, uh, they're they're preaching a series right now on Love Love Your Church. Uh, Though though today they're pausing from that series in light of the, the tragic explosion at the petrol station not far from them during the week. I'm I'm preaching uh, something uh, relevant to that. Uh, So so a lot of our our fellow churches have have found it helpful to think about some of these themes together. And at our last session meeting, the elders suggested that I do the same here. And we've decided to, to do that and to do it as a sermon series rather than a book study so that as many people as possible could hear it. Uh, though if you do want a copy of this book, Love Your Church, let, let me know. There are uh, seven or eight pounds plus postage to buy individually, but I'm sure we could do, we could do them for, for a fiver for anyone in the church who, who wanted one. Uh, we could put in a, a bulk order. Uh, and if you, you do get a copy of the book, you, you could read the relevant chapter either the week before or the week after uh, the sermon. Uh, and uh, I know some of you prefer to read on Kindle, uh, so the book is available to buy on Kindle as well. And if, if you do get the book, you'll hopefully see that although the sermon series will follow the chapter titles of the book, at least that's my plan at the moment, it's not just going to be me regurgitating a chapter of the book every week. This won't be a normal sermon series. We'll be referring to lots of different Bible passages every week rather than, than fixing our attention on one Uh, But I still trust that these will be sermons rather than anything else. Uh, And notice as well that the title of the series, Love Your Church. Uh, For most of us, uh, the application will be to this particular church. Uh, But uh, we've visitors here today. I'm sure we'll have visitors other weeks as well. Uh, So uh, it'll be things that that visitors can uh, hopefully take home and apply to their own church. 
Uh, and I'm conscious as well as we start this series that we have uh, a couple of, of people uh, among us who are planning to move to different places in, in the near future who, who are here for the start of this sermon series but, but sadly may not be here for the end of it. But the principles here are principles which will apply to any gospel preaching church. And so for those who are planning to relocate and will be looking for a new church, uh, these are principles that apply beyond Skrnar, they, they apply beyond the RP church, uh, because it's about God's attitude to the church uh, and how we're to seek to share that attitude. And I want to start this morning with a question of why we might struggle to get excited about church. Uh, and the related question of what is it that might stop someone wanting to belong to a church. So firstly this morning, why we might struggle to get excited about church. And this point will, this first point uh, today it will serve really as an introduction to the whole series. So, so we'll get more into specific Bible passages under point two. Uh, but firstly, why might we struggle to get excited about church? Now obviously, unbelievers will struggle to get excited about church. If you don't really believe the Bible, if Jesus isn't your personal saviour, then coming to church will just be drudgery. At best, it will be like eating your greens. You don't want to do it. You'd rather not do it. You'll take any opportunity you can to avoid doing it. But you feel uh, perhaps that you probably should do it occasionally at least. And yet if you have no real interest in spending time with Jesus people or listening to Jesus words... If someone has, has no real interest in doing those things, the, the only conclusion that can be drawn is that they're not one of Jesus' people. If being with Jesus' people and listening to Jesus' words doesn't excite someone, it would seem a, a sure sign that they're not one of Jesus' people themselves. And yet the sad truth is that even many genuine believers struggle to get excited about church. For many, any enthusiasm that, that people had for church had run dry even before COVID lockdowns. One really helpful book which came out in May 2020 uh, and so clearly had been in the works before COVID had the subtitle Learning to Love the Local Church. And that wasn't a book written for unbelievers trying to get them uh, excited about loving the local church that was a book aimed at believers, uh, but believers who, who for one reason or another uh, find it hard to love the local church. Or perhaps for, for believers who, who needed to, to relearn to love the local church, who, whose love uh, for it had grown cold. So why might even Christians struggle to love the church? For some Quite simply, it's that they may not have been taught about the importance of it. Uh, it's not that they know that church should be a, a big part of their lives and they're ignoring that. Uh, that they're open to learning about the importance of church. Uh, and perhaps that's, that's some here today. 
Other Christians struggled to love the church because it would be hard to describe ordinary church life as spectacular. In the book, Love Your Church, the author Tony Merida says that one obstacle to loving the church is a love of sensationalism. He says many Christians are stuck on the dramatic. We get excited about huge conferences, someone else's pastor or the latest controversy. And perhaps we could add to his list here, we get excited about revivals, special weeks of mission, about someone coming to, to share the dramatic testimony of their conversion. Now, am I against conferences or, or weeks of mission or, or, or people sharing their testimonies? Not at all. But we must not disparage the ordinary bread and butter, week-to-week life of the church. Because this is is what what the Lord Jesus has given us to to keep us going in the Christian life. As as Merida says, thrill-seekers simply don't find life in a local church stimulating enough to really get involved and stay involved. The action for them is elsewhere. Even for many Christians, the, the, the action, uh, and, and I think he says that himself in, in the book, in his, in his days at college, at university, he got involved in different ministries, different organizations. For him, the action, it wasn't in the local church, it was in these other organizations. Uh, but sensationalists, they, they don't get excited uh, at weekly Lord's Day worship services, uh, at visiting elderly members, uh, at uh, the thought of sitting down uh, at a table at a church lunch or, or after the evening service with someone who's very different from them uh, and trying to be an encouragement to them. Sensationalists don't get excited at the prospect of doing mundane practical jobs at the church which only God or or one or two others will ever know anything about. And yet I think Merritt is right when he goes on to say that while these acts may not be sensational in many people's eyes, they would turn the world upside down if we began to live them out. I think of the church in the book of Acts. Is not a lot spectacular, humanly speaking, especially as the book goes on, and yet they turned the world upside down. So, so a love of the, the sensational uh, can put people off church. For others, what puts them off, off much or any involvement in church is that they have been hurt as a result of their involvement in churches in the past. And in any area of life, being hurt tends to cause us to draw back into our shells. The phrase, once bitten, twice shy, has a lot of truth to it. And I have a huge amount of sympathy for those who have experienced that. The topics we're going to consider in this series include welcoming, caring and honouring. And it is a tragedy when people have tried to get involved in a church and not experienced those things, not received a welcome, and not received the, the care of God's people when, when they, they haven't experienced the, the, the one another's being lived out, such as honour, outdo one another in showing honour. 
or perhaps someone has poured their heart and soul into a church for years and then it comes out that the minister was committing some secret sin or uh, perhaps the, the church leaders knew about sin in the church. Maybe they, they knew about a case of abuse in the church and they, they, they covered it up or, or at least tried to deal with it themselves uh, rather than, than, than where appropriate going to the police. And I have so much sympathy for those who've experienced things like that in church. But surely the answer can't be, I'm never going to get involved in a church again. We, we hear that, I have heard that, but surely that can't be the answer. Let me tell you the story of someone who became a Christian. When he first tried to join a church, he was viewed with skepticism by the church leaders. Because of what he'd done in the past, they didn't believe that his conversion was genuine. They just, just didn't believe it. Then when he finally was able to join a church, he was verbally attacked by people in the church who, who turned out to be wolves in sheep's clothing. Others in the church took things that he had said and twisted them. Uh, at one time, he, he took a stand on an issue. Uh, and as a result, someone who had once been close to him left and, and took, took another person with him. Uh, this man was, was frequently disappointed and let down by professing Christians who, who turned out to be seeking their own interests rather than those of Christ Jesus. At uh, one time he even concluded, he, he said, they're all just seeking their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. At one point he was even arrested for speaking publicly about Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and rather than, than everyone rally around him, nobody came to his aid. If you haven't guessed it yet, that, that man was the Apostle Paul. He was under no illusion that the church was perfect. He had been disappointed by Christians more times than any of us have been. And yet that didn't cause him to walk away from the church. In fact, the Apostle Paul, who had experienced all that at the hands of Christians or professing Christians at least, he writes more beautifully about the church than, than anyone else who has ever lived. Paul calls the church beloved at, at least a dozen times in his letters. He regularly refers to other Christians as brothers and sisters, even if they're living pretty messed up lives. He doesn't hesitate to address them as saints. His writings overflow with tender mentions of individual Christians. He talks of his longing to be face-to-face -face with churches. He writes frequently about his anxiety for the churches and his affection for them. And he writes as well of his certainty of their future glorification. Paul had experienced so much that might cause him to be disappointed in the church and give up on the church altogether. And yet he never loses his glorious vision of, of what the church can be and of what the church is at her best. And of what Jesus by his spirit is making the church into. Another reason that might stop us getting excited uh, about a particular church is, is something we could call comparison. And this is actually the opposite of the last reason. 
We've just talked about people who are reluctant to get involved in church because their previous experience of church was so bad. But there are also those who are reluctant to get involved in church because their previous experience of church was so good. For example, if someone has been part of a church that they loved everything about and then they move somewhere different and none of those churches in the new place can compare with the old place, then what's the temptation? The temptation is not to get involved. The attitude can easily be, well, it'll never be as good as my old church. Their previous experience of church was so good that nothing is ever going to be able to compare and of course as time goes on it gets worse because our, our memories of, of, of good things tend to get rose tinted uh, to the extent that we forget any of the bad stuff or, or any of the frustrations that we had when we were there. And so we, 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 we struggle to, to get involved because we think it will never match up. Another version of this is what Merida calls idealism. And that's to have an unrealistic idea of church in our heads that no real life church ever compares to. Uh, it's, it's a bit perhaps like, like a, a, a young man or, or a young woman looking for a boyfriend or a girlfriend. But they have, they have such a, 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 a perfect uh, picture in their heads that, that no human being can ever live up to. And we, we can bring that attitude to the church. You, you hear it sometimes in the people who say, I, I wish that the church could just get back to the way it was in the first century. Then I get involved. To which the, the proper response, if anyone ever says that to you, the proper response is, have you read the New Testament? Uh, letter after letter in the New Testament addresses problems in the church. The seven letters to the churches in Revelation contain rebukes to five of the seven churches. Yes, we should pattern our churches after the New Testament. Uh, That's one of the reasons we've gone through the book of Acts recently. But let's not pretend that churches in the first century were faultless. Idealism is the enemy of true community. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a a German pastor who was executed by the Nazis right at the end of the Second World War, he he put it like this, the the quote's on your handout. He he who loves his dream of community more than the community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. In other words, if we love our idea of what church should be more than the real flesh and blood people that God has put us in community with, then that love for something which doesn't exist in real life can kill the thing that really does exist. For those of us who are are part of this congregation, those sitting around you, these flesh and blood brothers and sisters in the pews, these are the ones who God calls you to love. Not not some hypothetical ideal church that that doesn't exist or or, or that that does exist somewhere else. Real life involves highs and lows. It involves frustrations, disappointments, struggles. And Merida urges us and I would urge us to be quicker to identify evidences of grace in the church 
rather than function as a church critic. Be quicker to identify evidences of grace in the church rather than function as a church critic. Church critics tend to do far more damage to the church than than the worst, uh, most uh, secular legislation that is pushed through the government. It wouldn't show much love to a fellow believer to ignore all the evidences of grace in their life and just pick on their folks. Imagine we as elders were were to go around to someone and do a pastoral visit and to to ignore uh, the ways that they contributed to the church, not to try and encourage them in any way and just say, well, 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 you said this or, or or you're not doing this. To, to just pick on their faults, that, that, that would be a terrible thing. And it's the same with, with the church, just to, to ignore all the good in a church and pick on the faults. And ministers can be as guilty of this as anyone. But what does it say about any of us if we can talk about the bride of Jesus Christ and just pick out our flaws and say nothing about all the evidences of God's grace? So I'm not saying this because we have presbytery visitation coming up this week. This applies to ministers and their families. It applies to elders and their families. It applies to congregational members equally. What does it say about any of us if we can talk about the bride of Jesus Christ and just pick out our flaws and say nothing about all the evidences of God's grace? So why might we struggle to get excited about church? What might put us off wanting to belong to a particular congregation? Perhaps ignorance, simply not having been taught about it. Uh, Maybe sensationalism. Ordinary church life just doesn't seem that exciting. For some it's a bad experience of a previous church. For others it's a great experience of a previous church. Or it's an idealised picture of the New Testament church in our heads which doesn't actually match up to the reality of the New Testament church as it's pictured in the actual New Testament. And for any of those reasons or more, we can hold off fully getting involved in a church. But then secondly this morning... We have the much needed reminder of why belonging to a church is a great privilege. Why belonging to a church is a great privilege. Some of you will be familiar with Simon and Garfunkel's 1965 song, A Most Peculiar Man. It was based on a a four line obituary that Paul Simon read in a London newspaper. The song tells the story of a man who lived all alone, within a house, within a room, within himself. He had no friends, he he seldom spoke, and no one in turn ever spoke to him. The song goes on tragically to tell of him taking his own life. He didn't want to wake up any longer in his silent world and in his tiny room. And Mrs. Reardon, who lived upstairs from him, said he had a brother somewhere who should be notified soon. And all the people said, what a shame that he's dead. 
but wasn't he a most peculiar man? It is a, a haunting song with a haunting melody. And it's haunting because it describes so many people in our society. Uh, they're, they're alone. They're, they're cut off from their families. Uh, they, they have no meaningful relationships in their lives. Fast forward six decades or so from that song to our own day. And I'm in a Facebook group of almost 18,000 people. It's devoted to a BBC Radio 5 live show that I listened to for a while during lockdown. And I have very little in common with most of the people in the group. If you want to find a group of people who are into every woke cause going, a group of people who, who take everything that, that the BBC or The Guardian tells them as gospel, uh, there you have it. A group of people, they think exactly how we are told that we should think. But, but I stay in the group because I think it's useful to find out what sort of things a large cross-section of people in their 20s to 50s in the UK are talking about. Uh, probably not, not the majority of people in the UK, but, but, but a vocal minority. And one question that has come up in that group a number of times is, how do you make friends in real life? This question is coming from youngish professionals. They have work colleagues. Uh, some of them are married, but they don't have friends. Uh, and they don't even know where to start. Being part of an online community doesn't even begin to cut it. Many, many people in our society are lonely. They are achingly lonely. Surrounded by people, perhaps, but lonely. In the middle of London, maybe, with a spouse, with children, but lonely. But God didn't create us to be alone. Even before the fall, God says, it is not good for the man to be alone. To be created in the image of a God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit means that we were created for relationship. But sin separates us from one another. What happened after mankind's first sin? What, what did sin do to Adam and Eve? What did it do to their relationship? Well, well it led to them pointing the finger at each other, didn't it? It, it pushed them apart. That's Genesis 3. Then what happens is in Genesis 4. Cain kills Abel. Sin pulls us apart. Sin attacks the community that God wants to create. And yet because we are communal human beings, we try to set up our own communities. Human beings try to unite together, yet without God. Think of the Tower of Babel. Think of so many organisations today trying to unite people, trying to unite the nations of the world, but leaving God out of it. And it is just a shallow imitation of the true unity that God wants us, or that God wants to create. Sin separates us, and then uh, 
we know there's something missing so we try to try to find a sense of community in in fake community in in imitation communities uh, we even i've mentioned it before you had uh eight or ten years ago the first atheist church services being held because uh they they realized that the good it was for for people to to get together to share common values to sing songs together uh, and yet it's it's a, a pale imitation of the real thing sin separates us remember says Paul to the Ephesians in the passage we read earlier. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Sin separates. It separates us from God, and it separates us from the people of God. But amazingly, as Paul goes on to tell us in the next verse of Ephesians, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. And that restored relationship with God brings about a restored relationship with one another. Paul tells us that Christ has broken down, he's made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. I think of the joy there was in 1990 when the Berlin Wall came down. But that's nothing compared to the barriers that the gospel pulls down. Becoming a Christian has a, a horizontal dimension as well as a vertical one. Having a new relationship with God, uh, the vertical dimension leads to a new, it leads to new relationships with God's people in the horizontal dimension. Or at least it should. And yet there have been always those who've tried to live as if Christianity has just been about themselves and God. Uh, have you heard of Simeon the Stylite? Uh, he, he lived in the 5th century. He, he built a pillar and on the pillar was a small platform. Uh, and he lived on that platform for 37 years out of a desire to live close to God. You know, he, he wasn't completely by himself. People climbed up ladders to, to talk to him and so on. Sometimes he, he would preach from his pillar. But for 37 years he lived on a pillar. But even if we had no other responsibilities, and we could do that, is that what it is to be spiritual? Well, the picture the Bible gives us of discipleship is that it takes place in community. Discipleship in the Bible takes place in the context of community. The New Testament doesn't have people standing on pillars in the desert or sitting at home by themselves in order to grow close to God. Rather, sanctification, growing in holiness, it happens in the context of relations with other Christians. Growing in holiness happens in the context of relationships with other Christians. After all, if we don't have relationships with other Christians, if we just sit at home by ourselves, we'll think we're doing pretty well at the fruit of the Spirit. When, when there's no one to, to challenge us, no one to frustrate us. 
no one to compare ourselves to. Some of us will remember the Brazilian footballer Kaka. He, he played for AC Milan. In 2007, he, he was the, the best player in the world. Uh, Kaka is a professing Christian. He used to wear a t-shirt under his football shirt which said, I belong to Jesus. And when he took his football shirt off, the world would see his declaration on his shirt, I belong to Jesus. And if we're Christians, that's true of all of us. We belong to Jesus, whether it says it on our clothes or not. But to put it like this, if, if the front of our t-shirt says, I belong to Jesus, well then surely the back should say, I belong to the church. Because the two go together. If we love Jesus, we will love what he loves. And as Ephesians goes on to tell us in chapter 5, Jesus loved the church to such an extent that he gave up his life for her. The church is Jesus' bride. He loves her, do we? Imagine trying to say to a friend, well, I like you, um, but I don't like your wife. If I come round to your house, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you, but I'll ignore her, and I'll take every opportunity that I can to criticise her. If you want to talk about her, I'm happy to talk about her faults, but nothing else. Well, how's the friendship going to go? Not very well. And in the same way, if someone says they love Jesus, but they have no love for the church, if they can't talk about the church without criticising her, then there's something seriously wrong, not, not just with, <coughs> with their relationship with the church, <coughs> but with their relationship with him. If we love Jesus, we will love what he loves. And just b before we draw things to a conclu conclusion today, I've talked about belonging to a church, but, but what does that mean? Does it just mean going to one particular church rather than another? Or does it involve some sort of formal commitment on our part? I've mentioned already the book that describes a church in its title as a place to belong. Uh, and in, in the book Love Your Church, Merida says of God, he gives us a place where we belong. Now we need to commit to belonging. God gives us a place where we belong. Now we need to commit to belonging. In the New Testament it's clear that church members know which church they're part of and that church leaders know whose souls that they will one day have to answer for. In 1 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul calls for someone to be removed from the church, not physically dragged out, but declared to be no longer part of the body, which was a loving act to try and wake that person up to the seriousness of the position they were in. But in order for someone to be removed from the church, they have to be part of it in the first place. And I, I don't use that example to say become a member of the church so that we can remove you from it. But the, the assumption is that people will be inside the church. They will be able to distinguish between who is inside and who is outside. Uh, and whatever way membership is done, there has to be some way of, of making that distinction. 
Hebrews 13, 17, uh, I've preached on it before, it calls Christians to obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, which spiritual leaders are you obeying and submitting to? Which spiritual leaders are you obeying and submitting to? Because if you can't easily answer that question, you're out of sync with Hebrews 13. Sometimes people will say, and they'll say to me, well, I can submit to the leaders of this church without being an official member. But even if we were to ignore the fact that not becoming a member when the leaders think you should is already not submitting to them, even if, if, if we ignore that, it, it doesn't work in practice. It's a bit like saying marriage is just a piece of paper. Uh, for all intents and purposes, this person is my husband and wife or wife, even if it's not formalized. But of course, marriage isn't just a piece of paper. It involves vows taken before God. It binds two parties together in a way that makes it a lot harder to just walk away. And making it harder to just walk away is a good thing, whether that's in a marriage or in a church family. At the end of each chapter in Love Your Church, there are some action steps. One of them reads as follows. So something, an action step to take away and do. Uh, and one of them is as follows identify yourself with people in a local church if you're a professing Christian but not part of a local church then realize that you're not following the New Testament pattern Uh, Merida goes on to say realize also that you're not helping yourself for it is not wise or safe to be apart from accountability discipline and oversight of pastoral leaders who will give an account to God It is not wise or safe to be apart from accountability, discipline and the oversight of pastoral leaders who will give an account to God. And just as we close today, I want to do so with a final reason why belonging to a church is a great privilege. You know, belonging to a church, yeah, there are responsibilities, there are commitments. It's the same with marriage in a way, but... But surely we don't just look at marriage as, as for what it will bind us to, what the responsibilities uh, will be. Um, uh, surely uh, we, 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 we say it will be a great privilege uh, and we should look in the church the same way. Uh, and above all, the belonging to the church is a great privilege because that's where Jesus is. Where is Jesus pictured in the first chapter of Revelation? In the midst of the lampstands, uh, which are the churches, five of those seven churches, as I mentioned earlier, they need to be rebuked. But they're all described not simply as lampstands, but as golden lampstands. And unless or until that lampstand is removed, the Lord Jesus walks among it. Merida says, this is why I want my life intertwined with the church. This is why I refuse to give up on the church. He says, to be best placed to experience Jesus in a deep, fresh, life-changing way. You don't need a perch in the desert. You need a pew in the church. You don't need a perch in the desert. You need a pew in the church. And so, so pull up a pew for these next seven weeks as by God's grace we seek to learn how to love the church 
the way Jesus does. Uh, I think for, uh, for, for many of God's people, the issue isn't even that they don't want to love the church. Uh, it's not that they're, they're not convinced that they, that they shouldn't love the church. It's more the, the how. How do we love the church the way Jesus does? Uh, and that's one of the big questions uh, that God willing will seek to address in the weeks ahead uh, as we keep our eyes fixed on the one who loved the church so much that he gave himself up for her. Amen. Let's now sing about God's grace to and commitment to his church in Psalm 102. Psalm 102a. Psalm 102a. Starting on page 240. Psalm 102. Uh, the A version. Starting on page 240. It's verses 10 through 14. Verses 10 to 14. We're singing in verse 11 about Zion, about Jerusalem, which is a picture of the church. Uh, the, the Old Testament is full of, of pictures uh, which were preparing us for the New Testament. And what's God's attitude to the church in verse 11? Well, it says, You will arise and pity take on Zion. One day God will arise and take pity on his church. What is the attitude of God's people to the church in verse 12? Will they take pleasure in her stones and her very dust to them is dear? Uh, and perhaps we, we, we think of ourselves, we think, well, that's a good description of me. Uh, we, we take pleasure in the very dust of the church and the, the stones of the church. And, and perhaps we even think of our, our, our commitment to the physical building. But of course, what the, does the New Testament tell us that those stones are? Well, well, those stones are individual believers. Uh, to take pleasure in the stones of the church is to take pleasure in our, our fellow believers. And individual stones only reach their potential as part of this temple. In God's word, we have a beautiful balance. We, we have the dignity of the individual. We're not just cogs in a machine. We are individual stones uh, not not bricks um, you know stones is a, is a better picture than, than bricks because bricks are, are uniform bricks are, are identical but, but think of a stone wall it's made up of, of stones that, that are put together they, they all fit exactly in, in place uh, so, so we're, 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 we're stones uh, individual stones each made in the image of God each with a unique role to fulfill and yet as individual stones, we only reach our full potential as part of the temple. So Psalm 102a, 10 to 14, we'll stand to sing praise. <laughs> 